We're recording. We are recording, and I assume you're going to do the fancy. Hello, and welcome. <laughs> this is the fancy introduction that you wanted, Richard. Hello, and welcome to podcast number 13. And can I start? No, number 14. 14. Oh, my goodness. This is going to be a disaster. <laughs> I also want to apologise to the poor people who've got a subtitle of this podcast, because it's always difficult when people are laughing and talking over laughing. So to us, to our great subtitlers out there, apologies for that, or transcribers, rather. Anyway, oh, this is a disaster. We pay a fortune for the subtitles, so <laughs> we, we do. It costs a fortune, so it, I'm not sorry. Oh, let's no. make it contrafibularities <laughs> to our subtitles. <laughs> oh, dear. I'm, I'm anesthetic. What? <laughs> to, to, <laughs> to cause such discombobulations. Can I... It's, it's been a long gap since the last podcast and I suspect it's going to be a long gap to the next one because I think that will have just bankrupt us <laughs> <laughs> the cost of transcribing difficult words like that so um, oh it's our best introduction yet well done <laughs> so this is let's try that again this is podcast number 14 of All Things Java my name is Matt Greencroft I'm Richard Chesterwood and I suppose we should apologise for quite a long gap it, it has yeah May that May. we did the last edition and I guess we've just been completely snowed under. We yeah, had we had um, we had a guy, didn't we, send us a Facebook comment this week saying, your blogs are silent, you've no podcasts. Uh, he mentioned something else. I think very little on Facebook was the thing. Yeah, thing, so, and yeah. Uh, to be fair, I think we had scheduled in this podcast already. We're not doing the podcast just for that, that no, comment. But he was absolutely right, and, and I certainly... Me in particular, I go completely dark when I'm right. I just can't think of other things. You're much, you're much better at multitasking. But well, I, I don't know if I'm great at multitasking, but I think we've both been occupied on writing, which we'll talk about in the podcast. Apache and Spark, we're continuing the development yes. of, so we've got lots of machine learning coming up on this podcast, Indeed. I hope. Yeah. Indeed. Um, and I guess, I mean, personally, I've been working on a project doing actually some live lecturing with a university um, mm. that's one of our customers. Uh, but also, and we were just talking about this before we pressed record, is that uh, we're based in the UK, Brexit is happening, and we're trying to work out how it impacts us and our customers. And it's taking up an awful lot of time and a lot of mental energy and I guess that's take it made us take our my our minds off the ball a bit from this getting out all that regular communication that we really should be doing so apologies and yeah. we will do better or we'll try oh, to do well, better no we'll, we'll, we'll better carry on in exactly the same way <laughs> but uh, it is good to be podcasting I it think is it is and, and I th- we'd scheduled in today um today is Friday the 28th of September uh, knowing that this week was the week that a momentous occasion was scheduled to happen, which is the release of Java 11. Yes. And so we assumed, when we scheduled in this podcast, that we would want to talk about that. Richard, do you want to talk about no, that? No. I, I, well, you know, I've, I've said before, I find these version things really boring. From a technical point of view, it's not a big deal. But it is. It, the Java 11 is a massive deal for two reasons. I suppose they're connected reasons, aren't they? So this is the first of these LTS releases. Yes. So I have a cold at the minute, so you have to do the bulk of the talking Mm. on this podcast, so I'm just going to cough my way through this. So tell us all about what LTS 
so what? LCS stands for long-term support. Um, it's interesting actually because I've been, because I've been working on doing a couple of lectures. I've been reviewing some of this stuff recently. So it's taken us something like 23, 24 years to get eight versions of Java by 18 months to get the next three mm. and there'll be another 18 months to the next three and so nobody that I know has moved from Java 8 to 9 or 10 because everyone knows that Java 11 is the first version that Ooh, that's an interesting I'll pick you up on that that's okay. you think that's the reason why people have not moved to Java 9 for example no I, I, it's <laughs> okay. one of the reasons but certainly stability and confidence is is yes uh, and the fact, obviously, there are some big changes between eight and nine, which break things for the first time. So, for way. example, as far as I know, I haven't looked recently, but Apache Spark is not compatible with Java 9. It certainly wasn't when I last well, looked. I'm pretty sure it isn't. Android certainly isn't. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Most things that you look at, say, in my experience, you know, you need to use Java 8 for a guarantee that it's going to work. Because a lot of the framework manufacturers do need to make significant changes to make mm -hmm. things work with Java 9. Um, the other thing I think that might alter the workflow, if you are a IntelliJ user, then you know that in the Java 8 world, it is one project per IDE instance. Whereas if you're an Eclipse user, you can have two or three projects open and be working on them all within one IDE. In the Java 9 Plus world, that becomes, as I understand it, one IDE instance per module. Right. Now, because of this modularization, I believe, as a programmer, and I'm riffing a bit here, that you could be working on two or three modules simultaneously that are going to be interacting with each other. And you're going to need to do that with multiple IDEs open. Mm -hmm. And that is okay. a different workflow and experience. And that will take some getting used okay. to. Um, so, I mean, that's certainly a couple of comments from people I've heard. So there's, there's definitely some big changes. But going back to this LTS idea, yes. if you're a company and you are using Java in earnest and one of the things that is important to you is knowing that there is support out there. And by support, I mean somebody you can sue when things go wrong. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the LTS bit becomes important, right? So sure. Oracle are saying, or I don't know if it's Oracle or the Java committee, but certainly they're saying they're going to commit to updates for Java 11 in terms of security updates and patches for a significant number of years. And I can't remember off the top of my head how many it I is. I think um, the next LTS will be Java 17, so that's six versions, so it must be three years. Well, I think they're saying they're going to give patches longer than that. Longer though, than that, Because right. in the same way as they're still giving patches to Java 8. Ah, we'll right? come on to that, won't we? That's we a big, big deal. So, um, so mm. that's, yeah, so, so I guess people are now... Now that Java 11 is out there, starting to say, well, actually, what's in Java 11? When should I upgrade? When should I start looking at it? And I don't know about you, my instinct at the moment is I certainly want to go back through our Java Fundamentals course and just test everything with Java 11 and see. Because for the fundamentals of learning a language, 
you know, I, I imagine there should be a couple of extra bits that you might now want to know about, but the fundamentals, how to do a loop, how to do conditions, mm-hmm. interfaces, all that kind of stuff is probably still there. Yeah. Uh, and should hopefully not be broken. Um, but that might be famous last words. So certainly that's on my agenda is as a good way to, for me to explore Java 11 is let's go back through the fundamentals and work out what we've done, if anything, that's broken. And if there's nothing, great. Then we just start talking about what's new and what's yep. extra. And the important bit is whether it's a good idea to use it just because it's there or not. Uh, okay. The The other aspect of Java 11, which I'm guessing you were alluding to, is around cost and paying. Yeah. Um, There's a lot of fear, uncertainty and doubt going around the community at the moment. So, shall we try and understand? My my understanding, which may not be correct, I've literally spent half an hour reading some of this stuff, is that if you wish to use the Oracle J... R-E, so the, sorry, the Oracle Java Virtual Machine, to run a Java application in a production environment, and I'm using that term quite loosely, yep. or quite vaguely, I should say, then you are required under their license agreement to pay them a fee. Yes. So, as I understand it, for the purposes of development and for the purposes of demonstrating an app that you've built, there is no fee required. Okay. It's for running it in production. And the fee, there is a, one fee for desktops, one fee for uh, servers. And it's something like, and I'm making this up, this might not be exactly right, about $2.50 a month US dollars for desktops and something like $25 per CPU and a server per month. I think that's bang on, yes. I think there's a bit of variation based on sizes and things. But, okay. But you can use the open JDK for free. So you're not, of course, obliged to use Oracle's virtual machine. But if you are, then you are meant to pay for it. That's Mm -hmm. my understanding. Okay. Um, So I guess the question is, who's going to pay and when should you? Or or perhaps the question actually is, is there any reason not to just use the Oracle, sorry, the, the, the OpenJDK virtual machine and not pay Oracle for a license? I can see if you're a big company and you actually want the support from Oracle uh, that, that that you might well be willing, and it's not big money for a big company, clearly. Um, mm. But if you're a startup running a single server... Oh, uh, in know, that, there's no problem in that case. The OpenJDK has, is well, for a know. long time, it's, it's pretty much the same code base it, as the Oracle. And is it not now the reference implementation uh, of the virtual machine? I can't remember... Uh, uh, there, there. It may be. <laughs> I, I've lost track of that, but I and mean, it is exactly the same code base. The the Oracle one came with some extra um, you know, proprietary tools and so yes. on. But there were, there, for many years now, there hasn't been a risk in using OpenJDK in in production. No. Uh, so the startup that you're alluding to, that would be, I mean. We're one of them. Well, I was say, we're using, using OpenJDK. We, we absolutely run yeah. OpenJDKs on our servers, so no problem there. So, yeah, as you were mentioning before, though, those companies who need support, etc., I, I, I guess that wouldn't be a problem for them. But it's caused a massive stink in the community. That's the... Whatever the 
end result of all this is it's causing a lot of fear and doubt. Yes. And as you can tell from us riffing here, we, we don't know yet. This is going to take some time to settle, to get some clarity. Yes. And, and it's interesting that, you know, from the average programmer's point of view, if you are a developer, you're not, you know, that's not your job, right? To be purchasing licenses for production environments, uh-huh. right? And certainly in big organisations, I imagine they'll, most of them will have a purchasing department who will be responsible for this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But I guess as a developer, what you do need to know is, is there any reason technically or performance type thing why... Uh, one JVM would be better than another, um, or at least in terms of, you know, if, if you've always used the Oracle JVM on production servers, is there a good reason to stay with that rather than switch to the OpenJDK? And I'm not aware of any at this I'm stage. not aware of any. I wouldn't, um, I'm not insured, so I can't say, oh, there's no problem. Everybody just move across. I can't do that. But no. um, it, it, it's, it's the same running code yes. base. There are big variations in the performance of, other virtual remember there are other implementations of virtual machines yes. we don't use them we don't have any experience with them but there are others no i th- i thought i might have yeah there, there's no longer any free updates to java 8 either so does, when you say free updates though what does that mean would security patches not still be being released as far free? as i know not unless you're paying the license fee right um, what I'm not sure about is if Java 8, after January, when this will kick in, yes, uh, January 2019, I took it as you've been talking specifically about the uh, running virtual machines, runtime environments. My reading of this was this all applies to the full JDK. I'm not clear if after January you will be able to obtain a Java 8 oracle jdk right so this would affect our courses for example where if if you have to use java 8 to do java fundamentals i'm, yes. I'm fairly certain the current video directs you to the oracle site and you download sure from it there. Does, yeah it would now be a case of having to go to the adoptopenjdk.net site to download from there yes which is going to be the the i i suspect is going to be the community repository for pre-built openjdk binaries and they will have an archive of old yes. jdks as well and presumably they will presumably they will they will keep patching them and and so on. Well, right. We need to establish that. I mean, certainly we're in this interim period where Java 11 won't have been widely adopted purely because it's only just been released. Mm-hmm. I mean, even if crowds rush to use it, it would still take a year or two before it's in wide use, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I think we need to do... I can, I'm picturing that in terms of our catalogue, we might be recording one or two of the introductory videos to explain. Most of this course is on Java 8. If you're using Java 8, that's great. There's an alternative for video three where we install it because if you're using Java 11 or, you know, or if you're using Java 8, you need to install it. Uh, I can see a couple yeah. of where we'll just have alternatives and people can choose the right video for what they're using. And then in due course, in a year or two's time, as Java 11 becomes mm-hmm. the de facto, we will make greater changes then. Um, with, as I say, a few extras. I mean, I've had an inquiry about JUnit 5. So our test-driven development course, which is written JUnit 4, 
as I understand it, I haven't fully checked this yet, works absolutely fine with JUnit 5, mm-hmm. but there's a couple of alternative features in JUnit 5 that we probably should mention, so there's going to be an extra chapter added on. Yeah. And, you know, that's the only way realistically we can do this. But, of course, if you're learning JUnit or if you're learning testing, you need to know everything in that course. It's not the fact we've got a new version out there is not really the most critical thing. So... The, the the worry I have though is that for a period it might be the case that you won't be able to obtain you know any usable version of Java that works on our courses. So we've got a that, this that January will be a period. Challenge if that well, it would be we would use adopt openjdk.net as a we'll just put in a we'll yes go there just get the the last Java one point eight yes JDK and you're fine. Uh, so we'll keep an eye on that in the next yeah. work out what we do in the next sort of six to eight weeks, I guess. Um, yeah, I'm slightly embarrassed that I don't have a. I mean, I've been so we've been writing, we've been working on real projects basically, and uh, we, we are stuck in this fear, uncertainty, and doubt as well, just just as everybody else is, really. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I do wonder if this is we're, we're beginning to see the beginning of the end of Java, possibly. I mean, it has to happen at some point. It's. It, it's not edifying this whole process. It, no, um, we'll see. I, I, I'd be surprised if this is the beginning of the end, and it doesn't have to happen because C, which is way no. older than Java, is it's still different. Though it's out there. You know, C simple. It's mm. you know, it's a very. This, this is. I mean. I'm not going to mention specifically because it always starts wars and comments and all that, but I can think of many languages who have done similar things to what we're seeing in Java, and it has resulted in loss of community, loss of support, and then that language becomes a, 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 a technical dead end. Right. They might still exist as languages today, and you might still be able to get a job as a programmer in those languages, but, you know, there's no interest in that community anymore. But when you say I'm desperate def- to name what I'm thinking. Like, I'm not going to do yeah, that. Don't do it. But if you're <laughs> talking about the death of Java, are you talking about death of Java the programming language, but not Java the ecosystem. So bearing in mind there are other programming languages that can run on the JVM, Mm -hmm. and some of those are absolutely in the ascendant at the moment. Yeah, I'm talking about the language, really. The The language, yeah. um, You know, none of this affects Scala or Clojure. No. Oh, you're Kotlin, dear Kotlin fanboy. (laughs) Near Kotlin, Kotlin. Uh, Yeah, I don't think. I'm sure they're laughing at this. Yes. In fact, this is a... This is a yeah. It's it's a, it is complicated because of course the under combined with all of this, if you just look at the new features in Java eleven, for example, a lot of it is virtual machine improvements. Yes. So it, yeah, okay, it's it is them. it is it is impacted. It is sort of wrapped up together. But um, yeah, I'm I'm not going to say should 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 we look at the features that are in Java 11, the technical features? Okay. I've had a skim down, um, 17 notable features and changes. Um, I have explored none of them in any great detail, but they are largely, um, you know, they're, 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 I can't see any major new programming upgrades, such as the VAR keyword that came in on Java 10. Oh, so that, that came in Java 10, deal. didn't it? Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing like that. The only one that looks like nest-based access control, which is JEP181, could be interesting, but I haven't explored it. It's related to nested classes and that there will be some level of 
um, anxious control on nested classes. Well, okay, could be big. But just to give a flavour, a lot of the other things are things like there's a there's a new no operation garbage collector. One of the new features is just removing some Java EE and Corba modules out of the standard JDK. But they've added in this new HTTP client, uh, client which I think was created for JDK for Java 9. Yes. But they've now sort of, well, they're calling it standardised. So I think that means they've given it an official package. Um, yeah. So it's now, yes, that's right. So it was something like jdk.incubator.http. It's now java.net.http. Excellent. And they've also expanded it. It's uh, Previously, it was blocking. So now it's non-blocking. Oh, so you wow, can do all okay. your web sockets and that kind of thing in there. So, so we will have to have a look at the Java Web Development course again. Although... Indeed, we'll you will. <laughs> in seeing, we'll see how quickly we do that. It's not going to be at the top of our to-do list, if I'm honest. Well, and there's things like... Um, new cryptographic algorithms, you know, dead important stuff it really is, but mm. um, probably not something that would affect many people day to day. A few deprecations in there. Um, one thing I'm really interested in is JP328. And I have literally just now just Googled it. So please don't, you're going to stop grilling me with questions, but it looks, it's a low level feature. This it's not language level. It's, um, it's specifically for the JVM, the Hotspot JVM, and it's going to be a data collection framework within the JVM. So you're going to be able to do more enhanced monitoring of, not necessarily, actually not monitoring, not real-time monitoring, but when you have a crashed virtual machine, you're going to be able to find out what went wrong and why. Oh, so okay. could be a fantastic upgrade there to our Java memory management modules. Yeah. Um, it just looks... It, it, it's it's just triggering my my little uh, my nerdy radar is triggering just looking at it. I think there's going to be some good fun in there. So that's JEP three two eight, the flight recorder. Just the fact, I'm, can I do this rant? It's not a rant. This this is one of my real things. I keep going on about the things that are successful in our industry tend to be the things that have been given a good name, right and. Just the fact you've called it Flight Recorder. I get it already. I've not even looked into it. I get it. I can see where it's going to be useful. Beautiful. Beautiful. Even Jigsaw. Beautiful. Nice name. Doesn't mean that one's going to be successful. But Well, it, ha- well, it has to be, doesn't it? We're forced for it to be successful. But the beautiful name. But then, you know, when you call things like the... Uh, I'm trying to think of some examples. I'm, I'm looking down the list now. Yeah, the Java uh, Persistence API. Boring, isn't it? Call something Hibernate, and you know you kind of get a oh yeah, that's yeah, nice fluffy. Anyway, I've done that about a million times on this podcast. So I won't okay. do that anymore. Flight Recorder looks really interesting, but good. Okay, so expect over the next. I'm going to say months, few months, that there might be some changes. And we'll notify you through the news page, through the usual channels, as we change things to let you know what we've updated. Um, but what we are both really working on right now is Spark. Spark, yes. We released Module 1 of Spark back in February this year. So it seems like a long time ago, but it really wasn't. And the the intention was always... So that Module 1 focused on the RDDs, was sort of the core part of Spark, the older part of Spark, really. Yes. Um, it's, I, I think it is a beautiful framework to work in, um, but it's still, the RDD part of Spark is still 
a little bit Hadoopy, a, a little yes. bit map reducey. I mean, it isn't. It's much richer and nicer to work with, but it's still the RDDs are still quite low level. Basically, you're working with very raw big data sets, typically just text files often. Great. So anyway, the intention was always that we'd have a follow-up module two, module three, maybe even module four. Uh, not sure about that one yet, but uh, we would go on to do Spark SQL and then a module on Spark ML. So that's dealing with machine learning. So that was always the intention. And I get a sense no one, no one was kind of screaming at us. No one said, oh, where's module two? Which is a bit disappointing, really. But, we have um, had a few people, though, asking that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think the... Yeah, we, we have had a few people. I mean, it's not been screaming, but uh, the machine... I mean, we, so where are we up to date with that, then? So just for the for the benefit is we, we are working together on these courses. Um, I'm doing some of the writing, which is doing the recording and further research and so on. So um, module two, let's start with that one, which is the Spark SQL yep. part. So that's fully written now. It's all, and- yeah, it's all good to go. So just to, um, you know, anyone interested in learning Spark SQL, let's give them an overview of what it's about. So going back to, Traditional Spark RDDs, you typically, as I say, you're typically working with very raw, sort of non-tab. I'm trying to explain a typical input into RDD would be a long list of log messages or, yes. or transactions or very unstructured data, typically. Yes. Uh, yeah, because although you could work... I mean, you're... When you write code with Spark RDDs, it's a bit like writing code with a list or a map. Yes. So you're thinking in terms of a list of strings or if you're working with a list of customers and you can absolutely do that, but it doesn't really work that well because as soon as you start manipulating the data, is the output still a customer? Um, So Yeah, so your input there would be, you might have a massive text file key value pairs maybe the key could be a customer id and the value might be a great big long string of comma separated values or something yes. with the with the traditional java rdd framework you've then got to take that raw string and parse it and split it up and probably discard what you do it's tedious but it is but the one nice thing about rdds of course though is that you can write a lot of that code using the lambda expressions so oh, you yeah, are beautiful. using Functional Beautiful. programming techniques to work with it, and it were and it. it I, I'm just saying this just to just to dissuade anyone. We we have had people saying, "Oh, no one uses J- uh, Spark RDD <laughs> anymore." It's and it's true that the the place where the money is is Spark SQL now. That's really hot, much hotter than mm. Spark RDD, but. Don't, you have to learn, but you can't just go straight to Spark SQL. In my opinion, you want to learn RDD as well. It's got some beautiful use cases. So Absolutely. And there are some things. I mean, Spark SQL is using RDDs under the hood. So it's an abstraction on top of RDDs. And there are some things where you will get better performance using RDDs. Definitely. And in a production Definitely. environment. And, of course, the other thing is you can switch between the two. So yeah. uh, because it is an abstraction, it's not too difficult to go from one to the other. Yeah. Is that actually in a production environment, you might well be using RDDs yes. to get the job done in the most optimal way. And so, it's also a heck of a lot easier to understand 
yes. your performance characteristics Absolutely. when you're working with RDDs. Because you've got all that abstraction on top of Spark SQL. It, it, I, I'm still terrified. I, in fact, <laughs> you don't. You, you just don't look at it, do you? In no. Spark SQL, just oh, it, it works well enough. But we haven't said what Spark SQL is. There. So I admit, when I started working with it, I assumed it was going to be, oh, this is how we use Spark with databases, and that's not the case. Absolutely. So it, it is. I would describe Spark SQL as being a way of writing code that is more like how you think about writing database statements. So there are various ways to interact with Spark SQL. One is to write SQL-like statements as though you were using a relational database. Yes, which gets us back more to, I mean, we are co- we're, co- we're developers. We think like developers, but of course, it, data scientists are heavy users of this technology as well. Yes. And they don't want to think in code. So um, I, I imagine MapReduce was a real nightmare for them, Spark RDD, but but now we we've got back to sort of third generation language thinking that you can write what looks like it is just like SQL style query language. Not necessarily you you can use this against databases, but you can you, this query could well be uh, exploiting a, a a text file, a big data text yes. file that um, you've got some some logs or something, and you can interrogate it using an SQL-like syntax. And it's all tabular. That's the important thing. You're not dealing with, like, your input might well be a comma-separated value, comma-separated mm. string, but you don't need to worry about that. You're just thinking columns. Exactly. And, and actually, that's the key, is that even if you don't work with that you know, in inverted commas, select star from type structure, if you're writing it more as code, you are using, everything is is an object. So you've got a column is an object or a row is an object and you are interacting with them in a very different programmatic style mm-hmm. to when you're working with um, the RDDs. And in fact, it's not functional programming, is it, because of that? Yeah, and the functional program. I was disappointed at first because my big thing about the uh, Spark RDD is it is a great for me. It's a gateway drug into if you've if you've looked at lambdas in Java and you're kind of put off by them and you don't get them or whatever. Learn Spark RDDs, even if you're not interested in Spark RDDs, learn them because you're going to find yourself using lambda expressions really fluently and it's simple and straightforward. It's beautiful. When you get to Spark SQL, just because the model's different, really, you, I thought at first it was, oh, they've not bothered implementing Landers for Spark SQL. It's just, it's just, it's hard to explain, really, but they're not needed. They're just not needed in that model. Exactly. It's a different, because it's a different, I mean, the, the, the underlying data structure in, in RDDs is something we think of as being like a list. Right, yeah. isn't it? It's, so it's an RDD is a bit like a Java list, yep. right? Whereas the data structure for Spark SQL, which is this data set, is different. It's not like a list, and you don't. It's a table. It's a table. Um, not in not a map. It's not key value pairs. It no. is a table with columns. Yes. So so it's a very different way of thinking, and it's you know I think the transition from one to the other is about changing a way of thinking about how you're trying to achieve Mm -hmm. the same thing. Um, So that is Spark SQL. So that's going to be module two. And 
very sorry that this it should have been released today was actually going to be the release date. We've not announced it on the website, have we? No, we, we probably should have it coming soon on the website. We it would have been today, or at least principal recording was due to be completed. But I don't know if our millions of listeners can tell, but I have a cold at the minute. I can't record, so it would just be impossible to do it. So we're a bit delayed on it, but it's ready to, you know, it is ready to pump out. So hopefully within the next couple of weeks, we'll have that one live. And I hate to, this, this may well break things, but um, I think if you go through module one, it's quite hard work, quite a lot to learn. We go quite deep. I think we go deeper than any other course that I've not that I look at too many other courses, but I think we, we, we go pretty deep into the performance, the underlying model. It's hard work. When you've got a lot under your belt, the module two, there's no deep concepts. It's just another API. We don't labor it on module two. We just get straight in, start doing some examples. It's, yes. it's conceptually easy you're saying it's a big change i didn't really get it's more no it's, it's, an, it's sort of a mindset change and yeah. i think you get that as you it, it comes naturally as you work through and you yes. realize how this is working yes. um but certainly it's useful to be able to know i can do this operation in either yeah. paradigm right yeah. so yeah. Uh, definitely brilliant two sets of tools so that is going to be due out with virtual power programmers very soon we won't give a date so it, it's it has been delayed but we're there with it, looking forward to releasing it. But the one I'm really looking forward to will be Module 3, which you have been beavering away at. I have. And so Module 3 is machine learning. And um, I have... This has been a really hard module to write. So first Mm -hmm. of all, what is machine learning? Mm -hmm. Is And this is my... I think we talked about this before, Richard. I think this is my, my best summary of what I can describe machine learning is, is... A new way of describing a technique that's been around, sorry, no, a new way of automating a technique that's been around for a very long time, which is using statistical models to create models of the real world. So I used to work in a bank in IT. In that bank, they use statistical modeling to decide which customers they're going to lend money to and which customers they're not going to lend money to. And machine learning is a way of automating the process of coming up with the best model given the data, right? So they would have done a lot of this manually. Machine learning allows you to automate some of it. That's what this is about. And the challenge for this module is we can't sit here and teach the mathematics behind each of the different statistical models. Okay. Partly because... Uh, I think it's way outside the scope of what we yep. can do. And, you know, I, d- I don't understand all of the models that we are going to look at, to sure. be honest with yep. you. Um, I don't think there's a problem with that, is there? There is a, but I think that part of the difficulty here is that, well, well let, me, let me go, I'll come on to that. The way I've structured this course is that we're going to take one model type, which actually is going to be a linear regression, And we're going to learn how you build a linear regression in Spark. And actually, the way that works is we're going to do a really simple one, and then we're going to add elements to it to make the process complete. That is a big job. And at the moment, that is eight chapters. Wow. But on one model type. 
However, once we've done that and we understand everything about the process of Spark modeling, what we'll see is it's two lines of code to swap that out for a different model type. Yep. Because, and this will probably be no surprise, every aspect of modeling in Spark ML is implementing one of two types of interface. So if you want to change one model type to another model type because they implement the same interface, Beautiful. it's a simple swap. Now, there's a bit more to oh, it. That is but nice. That, I have looked at a lot of books and courses and so on about how to do you know, Spark ML, and everyone focuses on there are eight different models, and this is model one, this is model two. I'm saying that's, I think, a better way to do it is let's understand the complete com process and the complexities of that process, and then it's just a simple case of swapping in the right model at the end. Gorgeous. So what we will be covering is um, something, well, first of all, model accuracy, which is a key topic. How do you know once you've created your model that it's actually any good? <laughs> And actually, that is one of those things that changes based on the model type because your assessment of a linear regression model versus let's pick one of Adam McKay means model, they'll have completely different metrics. Okay. So, but the concept at least of, of that, um, and this is the bit that I was going to say is the difficult bit, is when you create a model, and this is really hard to try and talk about uh, when we are not halfway through this course already, um, let's say you're building a linear regression. So for the sake of argument, a linear regression model is something like, let's use that banking example, a customer would be good if they score above 50%. And you calculate 50% as being five times the number of years they've lived at a particular address and three times their, um, the number of years they've been employed. And you know, So you're building a formula. Yep. Now, there is a statistical algorithm that generates that formula, but that algorithm needs input parameters. Mm -hmm. And you've got to decide what are the input parameters. Now, without a degree in statistics and a full understanding of the algorithm as well as statistics, it's pretty impossible to come up with sensible looking parameters. Okay. So this is the bit that is a bit woolly and a bit vague, is we're, we're sort of saying, we're using some input parameters at random. And that just doesn't feel quite right. If you were a mathematician, you would probably, or I'd hope, have a better idea about the right starting parameters. And I am waving my hands around here as I say this. However, there is one redeeming feature, which is, and this is quite advanced, and we cover this as part of this process, is that Spark allows you to build what's called a parameter grid, which means you can say, I don't know whether... For this particular model, the right input parameters are 111, 222, 100, 100, 100, or whatever. So you can build a grid of these with lots of combinations and let Spark run that model thousands of times and work out mm -hmm. which produced the best model. Yeah. So even not understanding it, you can still hopefully get a good outcome. So we go into all of that. Excellent. Um, and the other big, I think, difficult topics, not that difficult once you understand it, is... If you're trying to build a mathematical model, and like I just said before, you're, you've got features like uh, the number of years someone's lived somewhere, the number of years they've worked somewhere, but you might also have their job type. And their job type could be anything from teacher to manager yeah. to cleaner. So there's a way of giving those a numerical value. Yep. Uh, and it's called indexing. 
Um, but there's a clever technique to do it so that you don't assume a cleaner would be better or worse than a chief executive. Mm-hmm. Because actually, in a particular example, you don't know a yeah, cleaner would be better or worse. So there's a whole way of doing this, um, which is quite complex to understand. It's called one-hot encoding. Right. Um, so we cover all of that. Oh, and you love all this, don't it, you? This is really... Do you know, it's been hard work getting... I knew, understanding I all know. of this in a way that we can then try and explain But I knew it, it would well. be right up your alley. It has um, been. So can I uh, be devil's advocacy here? Yes. and? Um, I mean, I know the answer to this, but um, I'm I'm a, a developer. Why do I, you know, why should I be doing a course on machine learning? What's the what's the interest and relevance to me as a developer? It's um, so that well, I'll, I'll be interested to hear what your answer is to that. But just going back to my career, I when I worked for the bank, which was in IT. Um, one of my jobs was to implement a mathematical model that was actually calculating something slightly different. It was calculating the amount of money the bank needed to hold in reserve to make sure it never went under if lots of people didn't pay them back. Let's not talk about the success of that one. <laughs> but my job was just to implement it, not to do the maths. But actually, I think there's a blurring. I mean, certainly math- that bank employed, as I'm sure all banks do, teams of statisticians they called them development uh, sorry they called them uh, oh, it's gone now something scientist data scientist oh yeah of course yeah. yeah so and they were writing code for a for for a statistical system which was called SAS the code's a bit like R I think mm-hmm. so, but they are basically writing code I think R is the open source version is it yes I think you're yeah. right yeah. so they were writing code of a form <coughs> that was really allowed to do maths so there is a crossover now certainly but actually if your job is to productionize and implement these systems mm-hmm. um, mach- using machine learning to m- allows you certainly to integrate it into other systems mm. much more easily mm-hmm. but it does take away a lot of the drudgery of doing heavy statistical analysis mm-hmm. um what's your answer um what i was really getting at with that question was um just to, to rephrase the question in, in, a, in, a, in a business way uh, and this is what we w- we will have gone through when we decided to do this course is w- who are we targeting this course at now, there are millions of courses out there on machine learning and Spark and all that kind of thing. You'll probably find, this is another a- angle to my question, that they're either written in Python or yes. R or possibly Scala. Um, I mean, Scala is kind of the natural language of Python anyway, but, uh, sorry, of, Pi- of, of Spark. Yes. Let me say that again. I'm listening to what I'm saying. Um yeah, I just ramble. I don't listen. Um, Scarlet is the natural language of Spark. That's yes. right. Um, so why are we doing a course on how to use Spark and machine learning with Java, which is not its kind of natural forte, and who are we targeting this at? And I think we are being asked by a lot of Java developers, when are you going to do a course on machine learning? Yes. They might. I don't think many have asked specifically for Spark ML. They've just asked for ML. Yes. So we're using Spark as our kind of gateway into machine learning. It's this is like we think this is quite a nice, easy way into it. There's lots of other frameworks we could be using, Scikit-Learn and all that sort of thing, and there's a whole forest of them. Um, so I'm rambling around. I have in my head, and I think this is me 
basically. I'm not a data scientist. I've never worked in that, that I can think of. I'm just racking my brains. I haven't worked in a bank like you have. I think my early career, I did do some mathematical modelling of, uh, but that was in a, in, a, in a different context. But it's not what I would think of as my, I'm a middle tier, you know, I do databases and that kind of thing. But, but it's obviously huge right now. All of this stuff has already existed, as you were saying before. It's just repackaged. But, but a... it's it's making something that was inaccessible yes. to the non-mathematician accessible, at least to the programmer. Yeah. And we, you know, for our own business, for virtual prep programmers, we are constantly asking questions of ourselves, like, for example, how do we detect a fraudulent customer? Yes. Right. Which. Machine learning is a technique for doing that. And so it's perfect for that, isn't it? it now, is. traditionally, we would have implemented looking for fraudulent customers by sitting down and coming up with some brilliant algorithm. Yeah, we'd be so pleased with that. After a day's work, we'd go to the pub and celebrate, aren't we clever? And then two days later, someone will have one of our one, <laughs> one of our enemies will have will have worked out what algorithm we're using, and now they're busy defeating it. Yeah. So then we'll whilst, go round. In the round. meantime, we've blocked our best customers. Yeah, absolutely. Say, you know? And apologies to anybody we have done that to. It's it's a terrible thing that it's like anti piracy measures on DVDs. The only people you hurt are the good customers. You don't hurt the pirates because they've they've already broken it. it. So this is a much and so if we hadn't known about, you know, if there was a complete blind spot to us, we wouldn't know there's a whole set of tools here where we can we can let the machine work with the data that it has and let it come up with what, you know, let it come up with the algorithms. And we wouldn't yes. have known that was a possible line of inquiry for us. So it's about broadening your tool set. Yes. I think. But I, th I think just in, in general is that right now, Machine learning and and the whole field of data science is so vibrant that as a as a working developer, even if you're only interested in developing for that, you, you you're missing out if you're not if you're not at least dipping your toe in the water of that area. Yes, and and, and, and machine the process of machine learning is about exploring and understanding your data. It's not about productionizing a system to. Uh, calculate things. Okay. Right? So that's because the output of machine learning is an algorithm you then productionize if you want to, right? So um, you wouldn't, if, if you've done a linear regression and that means you've got a formula for determining good customers, you wouldn't implement that in your production system in Spark because that's a massive overhead for what would actually be a simple calculation. So what Spark does is it gives you the formula for you to go and implement. So it's an investigatory tool. It's a tool to be used by developers. Okay. Um, interest. That is very interesting. But, um, yeah, I still think, you know, you wouldn't, your language of choice wouldn't be Java for this. It would be Python, surely. Well, your language of choice would be the language you are most familiar and mm -hmm. most competent with. And if you are a Java developer, and there's an awful lot of them out there, but mm -hmm. you don't yet know any Python, yeah. there's, you don't need to learn Python. You don't need to learn Scala. Anything you can do... With and, and Spark is a fantastic machine learning environment, right? So anything you can do in any of those languages with Spark, you can do in Java. Mm -hmm. And it's no... Okay, it might be a fraction more verbose than Scala, yes. but 
It's a fraction and not worth the overhead of learning Scarlet if that's your reason for learning Scarlet. Yes, so it lowers the cognitive load if you want to dip your toe in the water of this. You, Absolutely. You don't, and, and then maybe you could go and learn a bit of Python. And... Yeah, I'm not saying don't do it. But, <laughs> but I guess the other thing is it's also about this interacting with other systems you might have. So if you've already got a data warehouse with code that reads from it using Java... Well, plugging Spark on the back of it is an, is a no effort. Okay. You know, so again, it's interesting. Um, it, I, I, there's no compelling me if Spark is your goal, or machine learning with Spark is your goal. There is no reason if you don't know another language to go off and learn it. Yeah, I would say okay. there's no benefit of it. Okay. Um, so I'm a little alarmed by what you're telling me though, because we do have a hard deadline on. Module three. This has to be out. But so we know module two is coming quite soon. Yes. We don't have a date on it, but module three, and therefore module two as well, must be completed by the end of October. Now, what you're telling me is this is a mammoth roller coaster of eighty-four chapters, just to get you. So it's twelve chapters at the moment, of which eight are the process of model building yep. with one model. Yeah. Okay, and then. The, the, the remaining chapters look at four different models. Yeah. And just to, as an example, chapter nine, which is the first of the new models, is going from a linear regression to a logistic regression. Okay. I suspect that would be a 15-minute chapter. Yeah. So, so the, the, the hard work is definitely the beginning. Um, there, there are two types of model called supervised, non-supervised yeah. learning. So every, the, the first one is, the first section is all the supervised. Moving from that to unsupervised, which is supervised learning is where you have data with an answer, if you like. So mm -hmm. this idea of a good or a bad customer, yeah. if you know who are good customers and who are bad customers, you're using that data to come up with a formula. Unsupervised is where you don't know an outcome, so you're looking for connections. Yeah. Um, so that is a slightly different, it's not different code, but it's a different mindset. You brilliantly so, just described there, though, what I, I was sort of angling around a bit earlier, is that although this is a, you know, it's a, it's a course for developers and, and all that, you, you're just proving that these are good data science concepts, that, um, you know, if, if it is, this is not a course that is going to get you into a data science job, I don't think. No. We are not trying to teach people to be data scientists, but exactly what you're describing there is exactly what would be on a good data science course. So you're going to pick up a lot of really good... Yes. And, and, and the bit that you're missing that would get you the top data science job is the in-depth maths and statistical knowledge, I yes. think. Um, and experience as well, and experience, of course. Of yeah. course. But certainly as a programmer supporting a yeah. team of statisticians you'd be well in. And I am so excited. I think this is the most exciting release we've had for years, it, it, ever, yeah. probably. I, I just want to mention one final thing, which is there are two versions of Spark machine learning, uh, one to use with RDDs, one to use with Spark SQL. Okay. This course is the Spark SQL version mm -hmm. because they have actually announced that they will not support in the future. There is an end of life plan for the RDD version. Mm -hmm. So if that's you, just for ML, that's just for ML. Yeah. So uh, if you the, the Spark ML bit you run after you have done 
all the data manipulation you need to do in Spark yeah. generally to get your data in the right format. Yes. And that, of course, you can do with RDDs. Yeah. But you then convert to a data set before you run sure. Spark ML. Yeah. That's just no, the message there. No, it just wraps no, up no to where we, were, where we were talking about before. Um, just to be clear, they are not deprecating the RDD. No, certainly API. not. No. Good. Just for the machine. I'm very excited by this, and it has to be out by the end of October. We have a hard business deadline on that. So so it is pretty much written. I've actually got one chapter left to write, Mm -hmm. um, which is one of the... uh, It'll be on matrix factorization. Uh, That's the final model we're going to look at, um, which is what's used for recommender systems. So that's going to be the last one. But I will mention, in order to write this course, we have, at the same time, been building up models for ourselves so we're actually going to use a couple of our own case studies in this fantastic that Um, is which i know i've shared with you already but but for the purposes of our benefits out there listeners out there one was all about free trials so when a customer takes a free trial are they likely to be a good customer or not and my thinking behind that was if we could sorry are they likely to convert to a paying customer and If we could find, by doing some analysis, that customers who watch a minimum of, say, two hours within the first day always go on to pay, then we want to be doing more to encourage customers to watch more earlier. It was that kind of idea. So it was more of an investigation into Mm -hmm. how do we identify who are going to be great customers so we can make more of our customers great customers. Mm -hmm. And the other one was around actually the opposite. So Customers tend to leave when they've stopped watching, Mm -hmm. as a general rule. So can we predict who might be about to stop watching our videos? So who's tailing off, that kind of thing. So they're the two case studies we've got. Mm -hmm. We do do have our own internal one about fraud analysis. But again, I didn't feel, unfortunately, we could make that public in a... Because the metrics we're using on on the course are obviously have to be a cut-down version, so we're not giving away customer information. Mm-hmm. So, unfortunately, for the fraud one, it does use a lot more around um, attributes to do with the customer that we wouldn't be able to release publicly. Okay. Whereas chapter views is more around things like how long have they been a customer, yeah. how much of our catalogue have they watched already, how much did they mm-hmm. watch last month. Mm-hmm. You know, a bit more generic things that we sure. can do in a, in an anonymous way. So... This yeah. this was the thing I very much liked about module one of Spark was that we used two or three was it examples which you know were real. I criticize yeah. you you built the um, um, so there's there's an example in module one which is uh, we we take raw data of views of a course yes. Uh, so it's our, you know, our, our real life case study as you say, and you have to. And it, and it is all you do it yourself, although we have a guided walkthrough of it as well, but you're expected to try to do this for yourself. You have to come up with a league table of the best courses. And it, it, I criticise you saying this is too hard. It's too gruelling for a training course. Mm. And um, so it caused some tension there. But, you know, I absolutely, you know, fine. The end result of that is you've done some real work that, you know, we had to do. And it is yes. not... It is not a trivial, let's count a few words like you often get on training courses. It's gruelling, but when you get there, it's very satisfying. And it's, I want to be really clear that in order to do the case studies for this course, all of that has been done in advance. So mm-hmm. what you get, for example, is one data file in the right format with the data cleaned up yeah. for because 
I have effectively replicated that process we did in module one and done all of that off camera. Yeah, there's because no we point. don't want to waste time. No, doing absolutely. But, yeah. but but I want to be clear. In order to be able to do uh, the case study on chapter views, I've spent a good few hours writing the code to mm-hmm. do that data manipulation and yeah. get it in there. So, which was the same process, a similar process, very similar. case study. Yeah. So, so it's about linking data together, about identifying outliers, mm-hmm. all this kind of stuff. And if you're going to be doing machine learning in a production environment, you will still need to do that part of the job. Yeah. So, you yeah, know, it, this is not going to be a standalone module. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Right. Okay. Well, which I'm trying to brag about our courses really. We we, we, <laughs> we care we care about this that we, we don't we're we're professional trainers, so therefore we don't um we, we don't just do a, a knowledge dump and then expect you to do really hard, you know, academic examples. But we don't do hello worlds either. And probably the reason why we take so long in producing them is we are constantly trying to find that balance to m- make you work hard enough that you get a lot of value out of the course without it being too trivial and we've guided you through and that is what yes. it sounds like you've done a brilliant job on the writing I, for this I hope you think though when you look at Can't it can't wait the, the, we start simple I mean I, the <coughs> first example is a competition in a gym so it's something like uh, you've got a list of 20 people in the gym and you know their gender their age their weight their height I think and it tells you how many of a particular exercise they were able to do within five minutes Right. and the idea is can we predict from that data <laughs> Uh, the, the, well we should use it twice once is can we predict from that data when the next competitor comes along how they're going to do <laughs> and we also use it for trying to group these competitors into classes so you know like if you do a running race you get like veterans and you get under 30 you get groups don't you yeah. well can we group these people so you could identify somebody who's performing particularly well for their group right. given their age and height and weight and all this okay. kind of stuff so I wanted to pick a simple example that would still yeah. have some value and yes. of course that one's fabricated data right just yeah. so we can start so that's getting but, you up and running with it and exactly. then you go and apply it to something and we also harder. do because I think you have to if you're doing machine learning we do a house price predictor oh yeah. sorry you have to do that well one of but, the problems is of course there's not that many big data sets available publicly. So house prices is one that is publicly available from a long time ago. Yes, I've picked a house price index from Kaggle for that. I'm sure people are aware of Kaggle. It's a a site for getting large data sets. But of course the problem... That's where you do the competitions, isn't it? You can can do competitions. I've not tried one of those yet on there, I confess. Well, we'll definitely make that part of the course introducing people to Kaggle. Because if you're going to get into this, then Kaggle is the the place where you hang out, data scientists. but, But of course, one of the annoyance factors for me is that a lot of the work you have to do, if you pick one of these data sets... Is that tidying up? Yeah, and it is. It's ninety. It's ninety percent plus of the working data scientists is. cleaning. It is, and so <coughs> I found a house price uh, index in Kaggle that didn't need much tidying up, and that's the one we're using mm-hmm. um, purely because it need, you know we, it allows us to focus on the learning of building a model, right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, and it's an interesting one. I think it gives you can build some reasonable models with it. So, yeah. so anyway, so that's smart machine learning. We're both quite excited about this course. Yeah, but it has to be out by the end of October. Well, Hard business deadline. I, I am officially handing over to you everything I've done so far today, and I will be writing the last chapter in the next week, and then it's over to you to the next stage of editing and recording Great. and so on. So Great. It's going to be a very pressured space. month, so there probably it won't will. be much in the way of blog posts or podcasts. <laughs> I'm, sh- or... I'm sure there won't be another blog post until this course is out. So uh, Absolutely. But we'll... Um, 
we, we will be working on that. So apologies if you think we have been silent, but we have, we've not disappeared. We're honestly still here working very, very hard, hopefully producing some good material for you. And uh, yeah. So shall we leave it there for today? Yep. So we'll do another podcast. Um, we'll, we'll do one when, the, when, mod, when Module 3 is released. So. Yes. So let's say beginning of November, because this is going to be out early end of October. Um, but I hope you found this in some way interesting. I don't know how interesting it's been. Well, we often don't talk a lot about Java, do we? Which is interesting that, you know, the Java 11 thing, we were trying to appear interested and excited in that, and we're not. Because, you know, all the work is being done in frameworks and libraries and so on. So there's a good chance that a lot of our listeners are not interested in Spark, which is a shame. But, um, but, you know... We did have... And actually, just because you mentioned there might be a Module 4, I had an inquiry, I can't remember if this week or last, a couple of weeks ago, asking about streaming. We forgot... Yeah, I forgot all about that. And, you know, if we do a Module 4, it will be streaming with Spark. Um, So, or at least it'll be streaming, possibly with Spark and possibly not with Spark. We need to look into that. But that's what the topic would be. Yeah. Um, And I think next year, our focus for new releases has to be um, that kind of thing plus Kafka reactive yes. I've, I've done a lot of work on microservices and DevOps in the last year or two and I think you know the, the, the Kubernetes release was a good one really enjoyed it fantastic course there but I think I'm kind of done with that now for a bit yes. it's still an evolving area and all that but I think we've 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 tied off a lot of loose ends there I think that needs to be the 2019 focus right. personally but I might the be latest, wrong the latest and greatest frameworks and yeah projects and we there. are there's no doubt about it we have to admit we're, we're behind in that area and we've yes. got to catch up so um, that is our and, and what will for... slow us down a bit is that we do need to go which I say we it'll probably be me go through the back catalogue a bit and work out... It's what, holding us back, isn't it? Yeah, what, what needs to be either changed and updated or retired. And I think our, we're absolutely not now, I, th- I hope, going to sit there and re-record things. So, you know, when we went from spring three to spring four, it was a re-record. Yeah. I would hope now it would be a an extra few chapters explaining, you know, the fundamentals are still valid. Mm. Um, if you're using it... these So actually Android, I've done an update for Android... Um, which is exactly that. It's one extra chapter in Module 1, and it is a uh, an errata for Module 2. Um, Android changed the default layout, which means that every screen that you build is slightly different. So we've updated all the code, we've explained it up front. I believe that's sufficient. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's it's not practical. And actually, particularly for that course, which doesn't get huge viewing numbers, it really isn't yeah. practical to no. do a re-record. Because, of course, they might change it again next month. Sure. And this is the problem. So, uh, But so, something like Spring, which is very much core business to us, you know, yes. we, we, we've neglected it, frankly. Because, yes. You know, all these um, Kubernetes, Docker, and, and, and Spring Cloud as well, which we've covered very well. All these, it's a, the, we've got a lot of that catalogue there. And I think we, we tend to assume that, I mean, our customers are obviously top developers. Otherwise, they wouldn't be spending money with a company like us. So, Well, they end up as top developers. They might not well, start that they, way. They want they are, people they who are, aspire to be. They are top motivated. You know, they yes. are, you know, have, yeah. Um, <laughs> and so I think we, we kind of do assume that, you know, they're not going to go, oh, this is a disgrace. This is spring four. I want spring five. I think they get that, you know, the differences are not massive and they can easily pick up the differences. We are working on the core anyway. Yes. However, it does 
we um, Spring Security is a good example. We've got some fantastic courses in our library on Spring. I'm so proud of them. Um, three big modules, though, and there's probably stuff in that third module that we didn't really need to do. I was just like throwing everything I could at it. In fact, the third module, we've left a, a note saying, this course is still under development. We've got a couple more chapters to add. You know, we'll let you know when it's done. Never got round to it. Right. And nobody ever mentioned it. So, you know, it became obvious that no one wanted those um, extra topics. But there's a good example of where that needs a re-record. It all needs, like, turning into another module because things like I, I believe we've got the best training course in the world on OAuth right. OAuth 2 we just I mean it is it really is and I've compared it with a lot um, but it's buried in a module it's not quite obvious it's an OAuth course and now in spring OAuth is a core part of spring security you don't need this extra library so it's all, it's dated and it needs a re-record because it's one of the best it's the best course in the world at OAuth, so we should yes. be we should be selling it and making a big deal about it. But just as I was I was just looking into re-recording it and then I got a, I was having a conversation with somebody who's very into our microservice courses. And I, and I said, yeah, I won't be doing any microservices for a while because I'm thinking of re-recording Spring Security. And they said, what? You're dealing, no one uses that now. You're going to use the security of your um, of your cloud provider and you don't need it for microservices. I thought, of course, yeah, not for microservices. Like the architecture that we have on the Kubernetes course, for example, the front end is in Angular. Yes. So you're not going to be having customers logging in or whatever using Spring Security because it's JavaScript. And it, it's all... And then I realised, yeah, it's, it's not compatible with our latest releases. Doesn't right. mean we can't go back and read. Oh, yeah. it's, it's tricky. It's a lot of legacy to deal with. Yes. Just to close then on, we've got courses on Wildfly and Java EE at the minute. And of course, that's now moving to Jakarta EE. Version one, it's going to be version one, I think. Yes. Is due out soon or something. Don't ask me any details. I don't care. No. And, you know, that, that is, I mean, yes, we have four modules of Java There is a core of customers who do look at those, definitely. Um, and we'll need to take a view as to whether we update that or whether we say, do you know what? It's not I think we should, our core. Yeah, we should we'll fight. Because it. who's going to... But well, I'm not having no problems with Wildfly and no problem. And, and I, I wrote and recorded the original Java EE course and I was very pleased with it. And at yes. the time it was a good developer needs to know both major frameworks so they can compare and contrast. Yes. I had to work in both of them and I didn't, you know, much preferred Spring, but yes. I had no problems working in Java EE. I think time has moved on now. And as a business, now that we're a subscription business, that's the key difference. Yes. If you need to learn Wildfly, I would say our courses are brilliant for that so you come in you subscribe you do wildfly one two three four where do you go next you're at the dead end so you're going to unsubscribe so as a business to us it's not no exactly and i and i think you know in terms of our platform you know we, we have built our platform to be a a way for people to learn over time a vast range of techniques and skills that are relevant to them and their jobs. And wildfire, or maybe even not relevant though. I'm going to argue, well, like Android, for example. I would say it's cool, yeah, brilliant. If I'm a Java developer and I'm only interested in databases, it is not going to do me any harm to learn how Android works and how 
the, the, the challenges an Android developer faces. And I've said before on the podcast, it sounds insulting and it really isn't. When I did the Android course, I recorded module one and, and watched, you know, and edited module two. I know at the end of that, I never want to apply for a job as an Android developer because it doesn't suit my development style. Absolutely. That's all. Nothing wrong with Android, nothing wrong with being a developer. So it's a valuable thing for our subscribers to be watching. Uh- but somehow, why Java EE is? Well, I think I think the difference is that if if I was applying for a job today, I know there's a lot of job adverts that say full stack, yeah. Right? And having knowledge of Android, even though you know you're not going to do it, yep. you don't want to do it, at least gives you the confidence to apply for that job. Because I have, I get the, I get Android. Well, I get enough to know how it yep. works. In reality, I, very few jobs. Or you are building everything no. from the front end to the back no, end. For that generally Whereas, means you know some JavaScript, yeah, usually. Well, yeah, but but again, it, it adds to the your sort of range of knowledge that is generally useful. Yeah. Most, I understand, most systems are going to be either Java VE or Spring. And it's interesting that when you look at, well, in terms of back-end development, when you look at our customers who are doing Java VE, they are not looking generally at the vast majority of the rest of our platform. Yeah. So it does sit on its own a bit. Um, and, you know, to me, uh, you know, we, we, are, we, look, we want customers who are going to stay with us for years, right? Clearly, that's a good one for any business. Yeah. So we want to build the things that our core customers want and are going to want in mm-hmm. the future. Java just doesn't sit in that space. So yeah. you know, it might be the kind of course that works great on other platforms. Absolutely. But for us, yeah, you could sell it as a standalone course. It'll be a good course. But the problem is, as everybody can tell, we're not invested in in. Jakarta, Java. No. We're not interested in it. We it's, don't use it ourselves. Yeah, we don't use it. It's not to to me. It doesn't. I mean, it it is good that it's now moved to it's Eclipse, isn't it? Who are yes. managing it? That's good, and I think it will. It can't do the that area any harm, but I very very much doubt that's going to revive it sufficiently that it becomes a hot mainline topic for regular Java developers. I, I suspect it's it's at a dead end. It's got a long way to go to be up-to-date and modern. Yeah. And, of course, the, the one positive with Java VE, of course, is that there are companies out there who are sellers of application servers, which means if you are a bank who wants to buy something from somebody that you can sue when yeah. it all goes wrong, you can yeah. do. Yeah. And so that that's why I think it's surviving. That's always been the yeah, raison d'etre for it. Yes. But I, yeah. I think the world's moving on. Yeah. And yeah, I know Jakarta are going down the, we're making things smaller, we're making things more agile, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, not interesting. It's got a long way to go. So we we probably could do with with retiring some Some courses just just to show that we're not. Yeah. And well, also, we don't want stuff that looks very old and very old fashioned. So we will be spending a bit of time next year going through the back stack and updating culling a bit, hopefully adding a bit where things are new features like in Java 11. Yeah. And, and of uh, course we need to build out, I mentioned JavaScript, full stack developer generally implies, you know, some JavaScript. We need yes. we need some JavaScript on this. I've yes. been going on about, oh, I'm going to do an Angular, but, you know, even Angular now is dated. It's, it's, <laughs> it reacts now and all these sorts of things. It's a very fast moving area. And so, yeah, a bit like the machine. Yeah, I won't go on about that. Okay. Right. So we we were we were wrapping up like about fifteen minutes yes. ago, and then well, we started on again. At, so. at least at least with having been a big gap for this one, and there will be a reasonable gap for the next one. At least it's an extra long podcast then this time. Yeah. So uh, yeah. I hope you found it 
entertaining, if and nothing else. Yeah, so we'll see you next time, and thanks for listening. Indeed, thank you. Is that it? What a load of rubbish. <laughs>